morning, everybody. You know, cities are known for a lot of things. Mostly they're known for their unique features. I don't know if you've paid much attention to that or not, but Seattle has its Space Needle. New York has the Empire State Building, has the Statue of Liberty, right? San Francisco has its Golden Gate Bridge. Well, ever since 1963, Longview, Washington has been known for its famous landmark, a squirrel bridge called the Nutty Narrows Bridge, built in uh, March 19, 1963. You can see it there in the picture. Uh, the bottom photo in particular was taken at the time, shortly after it was constructed. The uh, Nutty Narrows Bridge spans Olympia Way Road in Longview, Washington. It gives squirrels a way to cross the busy thoroughfare without being flattened by cars. That's what it does. Before the bridge, they had to dodge traffic. Many squirrels were unsuccessful. But now squirrels use the bridge all the time, and the squirrels are happy. The neighbors are happy. Animal control is happy. In fact, everybody in Longview, Washington is so happy that they've built six more squirrel bridges throughout the city, and there are Nutty Narrows bridges everywhere. They're all over the place there if you travel there. It's what they're known for. Aren't you happy for Longview, and aren't you happy for the squirrels? We happy? Yes, we're happy. We're happy. I'm happy for them. Increasingly, though, I have to tell you that as I was reflecting on this, I kept feeling like we humans need a bridge. We need our own bridge to help us rise and escape from the dangers, the increasing mess of our world. I, I just kept, this week has just continued to reverberate inside of me. Have you noticed that our military is at war against terrorism seemingly all over the world? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that our nation's border security and immigration policies are a mess? And there's not one person to blame. There's like a whole bunch of people to blame, right? Have you noticed that our media and our government leaders lie to us daily? They use every synonym in the book other than lie. But that's what they're doing. To push someone's agenda, it's kind of tricky to figure out whose agenda it is. But it's being pushed quite successfully by both groups, all groups. Have you noticed in our present culture, increasingly more people seem to care about saving squirrels than saving babies? You know, some states, actually this past week and in recent weeks, have been passing legislation that make it, makes it legal for full-term babies to be aborted. I just want to say there's so much I could say about that. But let me just say, it is a moral issue, not a political issue. If you are a follower of Jesus, remember the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill slash murder. And legalizing murder doesn't make it morally right. Lots of things throughout the history of the earth have been legal and yet still wrong. I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg, friends. Some of the issues that are going on in our world. And I haven't even gotten to my troubles or your troubles personally because we've all got them. 
We live in a world that's messed up. It was true in Jesus' day. It's true in our day. Sometimes we try to hide from it. And I get that, and I think it has its place, but the reality is we got to figure out what do we do. Is there a bridge to safety, to a place of safety for us? A place where those of us who want to call God our God and Jesus our Savior and honor Him with our lives, is there a place that we can call home? According to the Bible, Jesus is the bridge, and Jesus has promised each of us who will trust Him a trouble-free home with Him and His Father. The Bible refers to as heaven. And in our world, we have to remember it. This is why passage after passage in the New Testament tells us to think, to not think so much about this world and all that it is, but to think, think of heaven and think of, think of what's above, think of what's to come. God recognizes that our world is a messed up place. Jesus understood that, and this morning I want you to draw, uh, focus your attention on a few uh, passages, a few words of Scripture, one passage of Scripture that uh, he speaks, uh, where he speaks. In John chapter 14 is where we're going to be this morning. John chapter 14, verses 1 and following. I want to invite you to listen as we look at these words and find some hope and some courage and confidence and consolation in his words because these are important words for us. John chapter 14, this is what the scripture says. Jesus is speaking, don't let your hearts be troubled. One of the harder commandments to keep, right? <laughs> don't let your hearts be troubled. You know, don't, don't worry. Trust in God and trust also in me, Jesus says. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything's ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. He's speaking to his disciples here. He says, you know the way to where I'm going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? Sometimes you feel like Thomas. It's like, God says, trust me. And it's like, I have no idea how to trust you, God. I, you, this is Thomas. Thomas is just saying, I don't have, we have no idea where you're going right now. What are you talking about? Verse 6, Jesus says, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Let's bow our heads and pray, all right? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, the witness that he has given us to to who you are, how you view the world, what you're doing in creation, what you're doing in and through us, what you have planned for us. We ask this morning, Lord, that you'll just enlighten our minds and our hearts what your word is saying here, what your son Jesus is trying to describe to his disciples then and his disciples now us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, faith to believe to walk in your ways. This is our prayer. We lift it together in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in, in these verses, Jesus is giving his disciples then, his disciples now, a reason to not be troubled. At the world around them and all the chaos, you know, we, we think things are bad in our time. Uh, they were horrible in Jesus' day. I mean, the Romans had control 
uh, of Judea and, and all of Israel, and, and they were not kind and friendly. I mean, they were not. They were horrible. Remember, Jesus was crucified in public, made a public mockery. I mean, just, this was just normative in the time. It, it, we could go on with things that were horrible about the time, but it was a horrible time to live. And Jesus is trying to convey to them and us in these verses that this world isn't all there is. Heaven exists, it's real, and He is the bridge between this world and that one. And everybody who will walk across that bridge, everyone, find a place of safety and hope. And that's the whole reason He came. The next few minutes want to unpack this passage because what he does is he addresses a number of questions that come to the minds of most of us whenever he starts talking as he did in John 14. I think there were questions that probably came to the apostles' mind, questions that come to our minds, and if you'll listen close, I think it will uh, inspire you with a little hope and courage to look beyond what we see day in and day out. The first question that Jesus kind of addresses, the question is not verbalized in the text, but his answer answers this question. And the question is really, what is heaven going to be like? What is it going to be like? He doesn't tell us everything about it, but he gives us some insight into it. And Jesus says, there's, look at verse 2, there's more than enough room in my father's home. And those, that one sentence tells us an awful Lot. He talks about there being lots of room, lots of space in God's home. You can, different versions of the Bible translate this, this sentence a little differently. If you look at it, some of them say that my there are many rooms in my father's house, some of the translations say. Some of them say there, there are many dwellings in my father's house. Some of them say there are many mansions. The King James, the old one, says uh, you know, there are many mansions. My father's house has many mansions and some prefer that. I was reading this past week of one lady who had read one of the newer translations like I typically use, and she said, I don't like that translation, she told the pastor. And he said, well, well why? He said, she says, I lived in little bitty scrawny beat-up houses my whole life. I want a mansion. I like the King James because it says many mansions, and I'm, I'm getting a mansion. pastor said, okay, whatever you say. How are you going to argue with her? She's like 89 or whatever. So... Uh, I mean, Jesus' point in the passage, though, is there's plenty of room, plenty of room in his Father's house for you. It's not going to be crowded. You're not going to be sharing a bunk with somebody that you don't want to hang with. In fact, in heaven, there are only going to be people you want to hang with. You know? There's going to be plenty of room for anyone you can manage to bring with you. To help you see that Jesus, when he says this, just this one verse, really what he was doing, he's the classic example of understatement. I mean, Jesus is not, he's not a marketer of our day, you know, where you hype everything. That's just not his style. It's not his nature. And so when Jesus says, you know, there's more than enough room in my father's house, it's understatement, classic understatement. Let me illustrate it this way. In Isaiah 66, verses 1 and following, the Bible tells us, this is what the Lord says. So the Lord is speaking here himself. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Think about the language. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? 
ideas here interacting with King David and Solomon who are thinking and wanting to build temples. He goes on and says, My hands have made both heaven and earth. They and everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, I share these two verses with you because I want you to think about this. If the skies above and the earth below, which we hike and swim and sightsee and dwell upon, are only, think about this, if those things that we love are only God's throne and footstool, then the size the grandeur of our universe and heaven and God's full kingdom are truly wonderful and majestic beyond our capacity to grasp. All he's given us a glimpse of are his throne and his footstool. What if we could see the rest of it? The scriptures are true, which say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. With all of that in mind, Jesus says, there's more than enough room in my father's house. It's the ultimate of understatements. But Jesus doesn't, isn't stopping there by using that phrase, that one sentence. He's referring to heaven in John 14 too. As his father's house. Did you notice the language? His father's house. We've been, it's kind of the series title, you know, as we've made our way through this. We know from the past few weeks that this is language of scripture that, that Jesus himself uses to describe a place where God wants to personally connect on a relational level with people. Remember, we've talked about this on a human level. We create these places. You know, you'll have a house, and so you build a, build a deck, or you build a fire pit, or you, you have a swimming pool out back. You, you, we have these places you know, where we want to connect relationally with people. Well, God has these places in the world and, and in his creation. You have the temple, the church that we talked about. The human body is one of those places that the Bible speaks of. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? It's my Father's house. It's what the scriptures are trying to convey to us. The family is a place where God wants it to be his house. And today we see that heaven, from God's perspective, is one of those places. It's a place where we're in intimate fellowship and relationship with God and, and there's just a closeness of proximity and Jesus, in this phrase, my father's house here in this text, he's giving even a different slant. He's trying to describe the nature, the quality, the, the spirit, if you will, the atmosphere. That's the word I'm looking for, the atmosphere of heaven with language that's reminiscent of Luke 15 and the parable of the prodigal son. You remember the parable? If you remember the parable in Luke 15, we find it. A younger son who comes to his father and says, will you divide your inherit my inheritance with me and my son or my brother now? Will you do that? And the father, what's he do? He agrees. He divides his inheritance between the two sons. And the older son keeps working and, and managing the property and so forth. The younger son takes his portion of the inheritance, goes off, the scriptures tell us, to a, a distant land. And what's he do? He squanders it on sinful living. I mean, he just, he just wastes it. He had incredible wealth, incredible opportunity, and he squandered every moment of that, every inch of that. It, it, the Bible actually uses the word riotous living. One of the ways it can be translated. 
And after a period of time, the way all riotous living goes, pretty soon you have no more money to fund riotous living, right? And when that happens, guess what? All your friends who were hanging out with you, living riotously, what do they do? They're not hanging out with you anymore because you can't fund their party, right? So now this guy's all by himself and he has no money and he's in a distant land. He didn't even have money for a train ticket home, a plane ticket home. He's, he's hanging out there and so he starts working for some other farmer there and he's feeding pigs and he's, he's starving and he, he reaches a point where he is so hungry that he's hungry for the food that he's feeding pigs. Think about that. Some of us grew up in Kansas out here, central Missouri, where we know what a hog farm is like. What do you feed the pigs? Slop, which is, that makes beef tripe look good. You know, put a hot dog, you know, on the USA, USDA approved list, right? So what's he do? He comes to his senses finally. The scriptures tell us, and he thinks to himself, my father's house is a place of abundance, a place of celebration. It's a place of grace and compassion. Think about my ser how the servants eat there. What am I doing feeding pigs? So he humbles himself and he comes home and he says to his father, I don't even deserve to be one of your servants, but I'll be one. And his father will have none of that. His father sees him from a distance, the scriptures tell us, from the front porch, sees the son coming home, and he runs to meet him and puts a ring on his finger, a robe on his back. And there's a giant party, a celebration, because his son who was lost, who was dead as far as he was concerned at that moment, is now alive. When Jesus says... There's more than enough room in my father's home. He's saying to all of us who wander, he's saying, my father's house is a place of abundance, a place of celebration, a place of grace and compassion, a place where all of you who have messed up but have the common sense to humble yourselves before me can come. And you'll find joy Do you agree with me when Jesus says, my father's house is enough room? It's, my father. It's, it's an understatement. But this is what he's saying. Well, if that's what it's going to be like, the next question that he addresses is, when can, when can we go there? Because this world ain't like that. My life ain't like that. When do I get to go? I think the disciples were thinking that because they're thinking, if Jesus is going away, what are we going to do? I mean, to whom are we going to go? Where are we going to turn? And, Jesus says this in verse 3, gives him this, this, this is kind of a cryptic answer, really, the way that he addresses this issue. He says, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you can be with me, so that you can always be with me where I am. Think about that language. What on earth could Jesus possibly mean when he says, when everything is ready? Or at least two ways to understand what Jesus is driving at here. At least two, probably more. But 
You know, Jesus could be saying, you know, we can, we can enter into heaven, enter into the Father's presence when Jesus returns at the end. I mean, the end itself, that, that, that could be part of what he's saying because he says, when everything is ready, I will come and get you. Scriptures speak of a day when Jesus is returning, right? And when he comes, he will come for all of his faithful ones. The, the dead in Christ will rise and so forth. We'll, we'll enter into the Father's presence. It'll be a glorious, magnificent moment, a time of abundance and celebration and grace and compassion for all who put their faith in Jesus. That is the picture of the end. But perhaps... Jesus not only means that, what if he means this? What, what if when everything is ready, he says, I will come and get you? What if what he's talking about is that's when you die? Think about it with me. I mean, what if death is not the end? See, most of us even who are followers of Jesus, we, we live with belief that there's life after death, but functionally on a practical level, we sort of approach death as though it's the end, right? Don't we? This is why we have movies called Bucket List and why we have our little lists that we want to do before the end. Because somehow or another, what, what this life is, is such a grandiose thing that, you know, we got to do these things now or else we're never going to have opportunity to do it. Maybe compared to heaven, all of this is playing with mud pies from God's perspective. If the heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool, guess what? Uh, this is like playing in a bathtub with a whole universe out there to experience and explore that would make this seem lame by comparison. Maybe death is our move-in date, not the end. I'm inclined to think that because Jesus is God in the flesh and because he's really smart, God's really smart, he's probably saying both things. When everything's ready, he'll come for all of us. And in the meantime, when everything's ready for you and me, you or me, He'll come for us. You know, sometimes we think about that too, and I, this is an aside, not in my notes, so maybe sub subject to being edited out in the future. But uh, you know, we always think, what happens when you die? What if the bright light that people sometimes describe seeing really is Jesus? He quite literally, with angelic escort perhaps, coming for you. Jesus addresses a question that, that might not naturally come to all of our minds next. He addresses who will see and experience his father's house? Who will experience heaven? I mean, if you were to ask that question in our culture, increasingly atheists sometimes believe in heaven. And you go, how's that? How does that work? But increasingly, we see that. You know, everybody wants to believe in heaven. Everybody believes that heaven... Nobody wants to believe in hell in our culture. We don't like hell. So let's strike that from our belief system. But we believe in heaven. We, you know, somehow we can keep one without the other. And, you know, it's the American way. 
Pick and choose what you want. It's capitalism at its best, marketing at its best. But Jesus' answer to this whole idea is that those who trust in Him and only those who trust in Him will see and experience heaven. Look at His, I'm not saying this, just look at what He says. John 14, 1, He says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in Me, He's saying. In verse 6, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And read the rest of this verse with me. No one can come to the Father except through me. These are traumatic words to our present culture. Because Jesus is stating something exclusive here. I mean, he is separating himself from Muhammad and from Confucius and from Buddha and from Moses, and from every other religious spiritual leader you can think of, Jesus is putting himself in a league all his own, everyone else, and either what Jesus is saying here is right, that no one can come to the Father except through me. Either, either what he's saying is right, and we all need to take seriously who he is and what he says on a scale that we typically you know, don't as a culture. We need to trust him fully, more fully. Or else what Jesus is saying is wrong and we need to run from him and avoid everything he says and recognize that he is a crazy man and I am crazy if I pay attention to that. He doesn't really leave room for one or he doesn't leave room for all of it at the same time. It's either one or the other. If he's wrong, he's not a great moral teacher. He's not a prophet. He's not a religious leader that should be trusted. If, if he's wrong, his promises of heaven are empty words and not worthy of your belief, which might be a problem for some of us who really, really, really want to believe in heaven, right? But if what Jesus says is right, Jesus is more than a teacher of morals. He's more than someone who has, has held, upheld an ethical standard of life. He's more than just a man whose virtue exceeds the norm. I mean, he alone possesses the keys to salvation and heaven if what he says is true. He is in a league, a category of one. I always liked how C.S. Lewis once wrote about all of this in his classic book, Mere Christianity. I've quoted this many times, used this many times. It's a fantastic quote. If it's new to you, you need to hear it. If it's familiar to you, you need to hear it again. But listen to what C.S. Lewis, the, the great thinker, former atheist turned believer in Jesus, what he wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. If you've never read it, it is a classic worth your, worth your time and your you know, $7.99 to read it or whatever you've got to pay to download it onto your iPad or whatever. So, C.S. Lewis writes, A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said, you know, like in this passage, would not be a great moral teacher, Lewis writes. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg. Think about that. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but don't let us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. 
He hasn't left that open to us, and he didn't intend to. His point, Jesus was emphatically clear and understating the point when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Those who choose to trust him, Jesus is saying, there's more than enough room in my father's home. This were not so what I've told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I've told you that. When everything's ready, I'll come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. My question for you is, have you chosen to put your trust in Jesus and only in Jesus. I read just last night a little article in the Christian Broadcasting Network. They have articles that come out periodically. And I, I read one about a person that in Kansas City we love to hate. Tom Brady. And uh, we've got uh, we had Bob Priest and various others who, you know, are uh, uh, New England fans, and we love him, and Bob, that is. And, uh, <laughs> and we love, and, and, you know, I was reading about him the, just last night, and uh, was the, the article was about how he just came out that his wife is, quote, a good witch. And, like, for all, all, the, all the games, and she's been doing this for years, I mean, she makes little altars for him before the game and incantations and mantras that he chants and various other things. And, and I read it and I thought, now we know why they beat us. Actually, actually no, that's not what went through my mind. What went through my mind was I, um, I just, I kind of thought football is a small thing. I had concern in my spirit for Tom Brady and for his wife and their children and just spent some time praying for them because he is... Arguably, I mean, he's, he's the premier quarterback of all NFL history at this point. I mean, he's won more, NFL, more Super Bowls than most people have ever played in. It's unbelievable. But here's the thing. If you're Tom Brady, that extreme, or, or, or anywhere in between, you, Jesus is just, have you put your faith and trust only in Jesus, because what, what Tom goes on to describe was, you know, he can't even, he was asked about their faith, and he said, I can't even describe it to you. He said, yeah, we kind of have a little bit of everything, was what he said. You know, we kind of have some of this good witchcraft and, and some Christian stuff and some other, some, he's got a, like a Buddha, four-inch Buddha in his locker that, you know, he kind of prays to, talks to before. He's got all this synthesis of stuff in our world, and and Jesus is making it clear to all of us that no, that's, that's not the way it works. Ancient Israel tried to do that. How did it work out for them? Not very well. Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And if you read the text, he's not really saying that in a mean-spirited way. He's saying it, I believe, with a pleading spirit, which is to say, 
Friends, trust me. You got to follow me. Look at what's going on around us in the world. How's that been working? You need a bridge to a place of safety. Look at my life. Trust me. Jesus is worthy of your and my complete trust for the present and the future. There's no one like him. Jesus is trustworthy because of his spotless integrity. Jesus is trustworthy because of his intellectual brilliance. There was no one like him. I mean, he was in a league of his own intellectually. Jesus is trustworthy because of his miraculous power. He could speak and the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame stand to their feet and walk. Jesus is trustworthy because of his sacrificial death. Do you realize he paid for your sins on the cross before you even knew that there were consequences for sin? It's an amazing thing that he did. Jesus is trustworthy because of his predicted resurrection. He predicted the impossible and then three days later, what did he do? He did it. Lots of imitators and people following since him trying to do that. Guess what? Their bodies have rotted in graves. Only Jesus has been resurrected. And Jesus is trustworthy because of his present position. And you say, what is his present position? Because we just think he's like, we just don't see him. Romans 8, 34 tells us this. Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And now he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand. Notice what it says. Pleading for us, interceding for us, some translations say. Jesus is in the heavens and he's currently seated at the right hand of the Father, speaking in our defense, interceding for us, countering the, accus- the accusations of the evil one who wants, to, who wants to take you out, wants to take me out. Why wouldn't you, why wouldn't I trust somebody who has that kind of big time influence with the judge of the universe who is pleading our case on our behalf? Why wouldn't you trust it? It's that Jesus who says in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. So I want to ask you, have you admitted that you've sinned and separated yourself from God? Come to that place. You believe that Jesus died and was resurrected so you, that I could be saved. Not because we deserved it, but because he cared for us and loved us while we were still sinners. Will you confess Jesus as the Lord of your life? After all, the scriptures are really clear that you, know, you and I will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that, that God raised him from the dead that we'll be saved. I mean, scriptures make that really clear. Have you, have you confessed him? And are, are you in an ongoing state of just acknowledging that you're a follower of Jesus? He's your Lord. He's your Savior. And endeavoring to live your life as though he's the Lord and Savior of your life. Finally, have you demonstrated your belief and allegiance to Jesus by repenting of sin, being baptized in water as the scriptures instruct us to do? 
Acts 2.38 says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's just to say, have you repented of your sins? Which means, have you decided to leave them behind? So you can follow Jesus in His way of life. Have you, have you done that? Have you been baptized in water as a public expression of your belief, your surrender, your loyalty, your allegiance to Him? That's something that you still need to do. You need to let us know. Let us help you. Obey the teachings of Scripture here. We want to help you do that. But instead of worrying about your hair or worrying about a whole lot of other things, you know, it's like how I'm going to look in front of everybody. And you got to get, some of us get squirrely about things like this. But we get squirrely. You think about this. If you've ever been married, you go through the marriage process and you step up here, one of you standing here, one of you standing here, the pastor standing here, and you're about to make your vows to each other. Are you nervous? Are you concerned about your hair? Yes, you are. But what do you do? You get married, right? You exchange your vows. You do it because why? It's the right thing to do. Friends, I don't care if you're nervous about being baptized in front of somebody else. Be thankful that God didn't ask you to confess your sins in front of everybody in order to be forgiven, right? Am I, are you with me on that? I am thankful about that. But he does ask us to publicly convey our allegiance, our loyalty, our submission, our surrender. And it's just interesting to me that sometimes when, when you think about baptism, it's this picture of surrender. And yet I won't be baptized because I'm nervous about my hair or the water or whatever, you know, who's there. Or, whoa, whoa. Surrender, surrender, dying to self. I mean, on some level, we don't, we disconnect on this. But God is, God is saying, God is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you'll come to him, Jesus, he will be a bridge for you from the corruption of our world to a place of safety, heaven. And he's giving us opportunities right now to do that. I want to close with this thought. You know, Longview, Washington's famous for its uh, squirrel bridges. And uh, partly I wanted to use the illustration because that thing's funny. <laughs> to me, it's just like all I could do to kind of keep a straight face and not talk about squirrels getting run over the whole time. It just, but I knew all of us would be ill if I did that. So, um, but as I was reflecting on that, Jesus is famous for building a different kind of bridge. And heaven is going to be a famous place because of everyone who chooses to walk across that bridge and the one who built it. The one who built it will be revered through all eternity because he's good and he's grace-filled. His mercies are abundant. And the atmosphere of heaven Everything you've dreamed of it being. One, one atheist said, I, I wish it was going to be like Thanksgiving 
when I walk into my mom's home and smell hot apple pie. And I thought, you know, it'll be like that, the spirit of that. It is what you were made for. You were made by God to breathe the atmosphere of heaven. Don't miss it. Turn to Jesus, trust in him, and you'll be there. You'll get there. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And even as we pray, just encourage you, if you've never invited Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your heart, you know, as we, as we pray, you can do that. And if you've never been baptized and we wrap up here, come down and tell me and we'll make arrangements for you to be baptized here in the near future. We are going to have some people baptized next week, I know. Uh, maybe you can participate in that one. Maybe that won't work for you, but we'll figure out something that works for you. Maybe you need prayer for some other issue in your life. would encourage you to... Come on down, let's pray about that. But uh, let's bow our heads, and then we'll be dismissed. And I just have to throw out, pray for Tom Brady. Pray for him. I'm serious. I'm not really joking. I'm serious. I mean, he's a, he, he is a good man, and he's here for more than football. So pray for him, all right? Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your faithfulness, your kindness. Though our world went off the rails many centuries ago, you have not left us to ourselves. If it were not for your good grace, if it was not for your presence, evil would have surely consumed the earth by now. We thank you that you have not allowed that to be the case. But we can't help but look at our world and recognize that this isn't all there is. This can't be all there is. There has to be more. And you've communicated that to us so clearly and really concisely through the life of Jesus who lived a sinless, perfect life, who demonstrated your power, who demonstrated your character, who demonstrated your virtue, who died like we die but rose like only you could and has invited us to put our faith in him we might walk across the bridge that is his sacrificed body and resurrected body to enter into the kingdom of heaven which you've prepared for him and us. We're made to breathe that air, Lord. Would you help us to choose to walk in faith toward you? Maybe some of us this morning need to look heavenward, Lord. We just need to acknowledge to you that I'm a sinner. If you need to admit that, just right now, just admit, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've fallen so short. Thank you that you're a forgiving God. Thank you that you cared for me when I didn't care for you, Father. Thank you that you died, Lord Jesus, when I did not yet know what sin was or that there were consequences for it. Thank you. Thank you that you made it possible through your shed blood that if I put my faith in you, I can know you now and experience eternity with you. Lord, I just want to put my faith in you. I, I, I ask you to fill me with your spirit. I repent of my sins. I ask you to fill me with your spirit. 
Would you cleanse me of all unrighteousness? Would you make me yours? Father, if there are those who are just praying that way, I just ask that you give them the courage to obey your teachings, to be baptized, as Scripture says, to choose to walk in newness of life that you can give them. Because, God, we, we need your help now, and we will need your help forever. We need you. We were made for you. The earth and everything in it, including us, belongs to you. We are yours. We just give ourselves back to you. And Lord, as we leave this place, may these thoughts echo in our hearts and may you help us to remember that there's a lot of room in heaven. That every person we lock eyes with, there's room for them. Help us to not take tomorrow for granted or today for granted. Help us to, help us to try to encourage, to invite to plead, if necessary, with people to give their lives to you that they might experience what they were made for, which is heaven. Lord, as we leave this place, go with us. We dedicate ourselves to you afresh. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.